Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will edify It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you'd better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to Pages and Popcorn Podcast, the podcast where we, Jennifer and Kalia, two book nerds, talk about the movies based on books as well as the original source material. Today we will be discussing the 1993 memoir, which was adapted to become the 1999 film Girl Interrupted. But first, we are going to tell you all the ways that you can connect with us on the internet. First off, we have a webpage where you can find sources, references, and updates about the show. You can also connect to us via our Facebook page or our Twitter. Both are searchable by typing in Pages and Popcorn Podcast into your search bar. And of course, you can email us directly at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. We also want to thank all of our patrons for their continued support and remind you all that our Patreon page is www.patreon.com slash pagesandpopcornpodcast, and you are welcome to support us and this podcast for as little as $1 a month. That tiny little bit of a support really does help us out, and for your dollar a month, you'll have early access to all the podcasts the second that they're ready. We also have some perks coming at the $5 level when there's going to be some really cool supplementals coming up, so head on over to our Patreon page and sign up. Again, it's patreon.com slash pages and popcorn podcast. And now, on with the show. So Girl Interrupted is the best-selling 1993 memoir by American author Suzanne Kaysen relating to her experiences as a young woman in a psychiatric hospital in the 1960s after being diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. The memoir's title is a reference to the veneer painting Girl Interrupted at her music, and we will talk about the painting. I have a lot to say about that. But before we um, do our recap, which Jennifer's going to do our recap today, a real quick note about trigger warnings, because... There are quite a few of them in this. Yes. So because this has to do with... It is a memoir, so it is real. Um, Her experiences in a psychiatric hospital, so there's mental illness, a lot of mental illness. There's pretty graphic... 
discussions about suicide attempts, self-harm. There is a suicide. There is an actual suicide as well as all the attempts. There is also, well, we can talk whether or not we feel that is rape or not, but there is is a problematic sexual encounter. So there's there's a lot of stuff that happens and uh, including death and trauma. And we just want to make sure that if you're maybe not in place right now to hear about women being stomped on by the patriarchy and having their mental illness exploited and treated like crap, it's okay to skip this one and listen to us when you're in a, in a healthier place. Please, because self-care is very, very important. Let's go ahead and move into, into our recap. Yep. Okay, so I am not going to do a traditional book plot because this is not a traditional book. Thank you. The book is rather short. It doesn't have a typical linear narrative. Instead, the book is more of a collection of observations, reflections, and impressions of Keystone's experiences with borderline personality disorder and being in a mental institution in 1967. Kaysen. There's no okay. T. At the age of 18, Susanna Kaysen is sent to McLean Hospital by a psychiatrist she hasn't met before. Uh, McLean is a famous or infamous hospital. Uh, they also had John Nash, who you might know from A Beautiful Mind, David Foster Wallace, Annie Sexton, Sylvia Plath, James Taylor, Ray Charles. So they've had quite a line of famous patients. The book starts with Kaysen talking with her psychologist after an overdose on aspirin, but she denies it was a suicide attempt. The psychologist ships her off to McLean Hospital, where she stays for the next 18 months. The rest of the book is an examination of the patients and staff who shape her experiences. She also considers the ideas we have about illness and normalcy, claiming sanity is a falsehood to help other people feel normal. She questions whether doctors are treating the mind or the brain. At one point, Keystone undergoes depersonalization and starts chewing and biting at her hand to get to her bones. When Keystone awakens from anesthesia from a dentist appointment, she starts obsessing over the last time she is medicated until she can be medicated. Lola is known to the rest of the patients after the book. Uh, Daisy committed suicide on her birthday while the others are still in the institution. Uh, Susanna kept in touch with Georgina, who was her roommate at the institution, and saw Lisa on an occasion. Lisa was rather eccentric and had a son, but seemed relatively okay, if a bit strange. So I think in order to kind of understand, because it is all vignettes, if we kind of just touched on the characters, Mm. that would kind of help us get a sense of what the book talked about. Because it really is more of a character study than anything else. Well, yeah, because it's a memoir. And so you expect different things. I feel like you can get a sense of what happened in the book if you just kind of did a blurb about each character. Okay, so Susanna Kaysen is the one who wrote her autobiography. She's our main character. She's the one we see everything through. Even though I say character, she is a real person. And this is based on her experiences. She voluntarily admitted herself after a consultation. And she was only supposed to stay there a few weeks, but ended staying there for a year and a half. Okay, so Lisa is a sociopath, but it's somewhat debatable in the novel. This is understandable because we're talking about real people. Lisa periodically escapes from the hospital only to be found a day or two later and readmitted. She's usually happy enough to be back when she is, but fights and has to be restrained. She's an ex-junkie who never sleeps, barely eats, and enjoys making trouble for the staff. She also takes quite a bit of pride in her diagnosis as being an outsider. Uh, Georgina is considered the other most healthy person in the institution. And she is Susanna's roommate. Uh, Georgina is hospitalized for schizophrenia. She has a boyfriend who is also in the hospital named Wade, who says his father works for the CIA. Georgina apparently experienced her first symptoms after an episode in a movie theater where she suddenly felt as if the darkness had surrounded her completely. We have Daisy, who is thin, arrives before Thanksgiving each year and stays through Christmas. 
She has a room all of her own. She is obsessed with laxatives and chicken. Lisa says that her room smells awful, and that's when they find out that she keeps these carcasses. And when she gets to a certain number, that's when she's allowed to leave. Not explicit, but it is theorized by the other patients that she is in an incestuous relationship with her father. Polly uh, is a girl who has quite a bit of credibility in the institution. She burnt herself. She's very kind and sweet, but the act of burning herself is considered rather brave by everyone else. Let's see. Cynthia Crawley is a fairly minor character. She's only mentioned once or twice, and she undergoes weekly electroconvulsive therapy. Uh, Valerie is the main nurse. She is well-liked by most of the girls and staff. Uh, she tends to be friendly and somewhat relaxed. She is contrasted with Mrs. McWheeney, who is the night nurse, who all the girls generally dislike, although details about her are fairly sparse. Melvin is Keenson's therapist and analyst. She says the two of them used to be friends and once enjoyed sessions with him. However, the relationship is short-lived. Melvin rolled into the hospital parking lot and, when greeted enthusiastically by Susanna, refused to entertain her. Her opinion of him goes down quite a bit after that. Uh, there's Dr. Wick, who is old-fashioned, is easily shocked, and so Susanna loves talking about sex, just to shock her, for funsies. Okay, so the book ends with Kaysen talking about her life after the institution. She has a series of relationships that aren't very successful. She meets with Lisa at one point. Is there anything in particular you want to go through? Yeah, okay, so I would say that the book ends when Susanna is marked down as cured because she gets a marriage proposal, and and is able to be successfully employed and outside. She moves into an impatient sort of relationship with the hospital, and then she gets a marriage proposal, and then she is released because she's cured. However, because it is a memoir, this book is written primarily in three parts. We have the hospital documentation that is in the memoir, which is very interesting. You can read these actual doctor's notes and stuff. When we have her in the time of being a young girl in the institution, present tense. And then we have her looking back on it and drawing conclusions and making statements and coming to some interesting conclusions about her stay in, in a very reflective sort of way. And so the book really ends with Susanna talking and making a plea to the reader about what all of this means and, and coming to terms with it, but also challenging us. So I found that was really interesting. I'm sorry, I just stepped all over your recap. <laughs> <laughs> I feel bad. I don't feel that bad. Okay, well, would you like to recap the movie? <laughs> <laughs> How conciliatory of you. <laughs> All right, movie plot. Uh, we start with one of the last scenes that takes place in the mental hospital. A young Winona writer plays Susanna, and we quickly move into a scene with her in the R, so we're jumping back and forth in time, which is fairly similar to what happens with the book. So in the ER, Susanna took an overdose of aspirin, complaining that she didn't think she had any bones in her wrist, which is an odd to the novel. Uh, next, we're in the therapist's office, and time is slipping everywhere, something that happens throughout the movie. So we go to a birthday, to a graduation, you know, we're in bed with her boyfriend. Uh, the therapist talks her into going to a mental hospital. This has clearly been prearranged with her family. We're privy to an affair Keeson had with a married friend of her parents. She has an interest in college and has few plans for life, only that she wants to write. So these are all told in flashes. After a quick introduction to the hospital by the lead nurse, Valerie, played by Whitby Goldberg, we get a glimpse of the horrors of the institution. Lisa, played by Angelina Jolie, is an escaped and recaptured patient and has a dramatic entrance with lots of shouting and shoving staff about before interrogating Susanna. Lisa is played with obvious sexuality, charm, and can be kind or, or cruel at random intervals. 
Next, we see Lisa in an almost comatose state. Susanna is given medication she isn't familiar with and had no consent, had no choice over, and was not discussed with. And there are multiple nods to the lack of consent from the book. Uh, the lack of privacy is also fairly well documented. She isn't allowed to shave without a nurse watching her. Susanna has some time-slipping moments, including a past encounter with her boyfriend, who in the present is going to go to Vietnam. Lisa comes back in a dramatic fashion, flirting with one of the patients and having a personal and friendly relationship with one of the nurses and can seemingly get away with almost anything. Daisy shows up and has a very intimate hug with her father and screams for laxatives. Susanna gains entry uh, by bribing her with laxatives. Daisy has a sort of Stepford Wives vibe with a dirty whore mouth and plays with rotisserie chickens on her bed. Lisa barges in, complains about the smell, and manipulates Daisy into trading her pills and discovers all the chicken carcasses under the bed. In therapy, Susanna's mother confesses to an accident when Susanna broke her leg as a baby, something the mother still feels guilty over. Parents are worried about their community standing and daughter's diagnosis, which has been kept from Susanna. Lisa tells Susanna how to break into the psychiatrist's office to find the records. But before they sneak into the office, they bowl in the basement that looks a lot like a dungeon. They just decide to go bowling because it's there. The actual reading of the cases is lighthearted by some, but painful for Susanna. While on an outing to an ice cream parlor, Lisa engages in some flirting with a clueless ice cream jerk. Susanna recognizes a friend of the family, Miss Gilchrist. Her daughter is going to Wesley, which is a counterpoint to Susanna's own directionless life. The outing goes wrong when Mrs. Gilchrist yells at Susanna for having an affair with her husband. Lisa stands up for her, and at her lead, the rest of the inmates start barking at Gilchrist, who leaves in a huff. Daisy leaves after staying for a month, which upsets the other girls who have been stuck there for an unknown amount of time and have an indefinite stay. Time moves on in a montage. Susanna's boyfriend arrives. Lisa's attempts to give them more time by distracting nurse with a humorous suicide attempt. And Valerie tells the lovers to take a walk. Toby, her boyfriend, tries to get her out with plans to escape the war for Canada, but Susanna doesn't want to leave. In the next scene, she wakes and talks to one of the orderlies, John. The two are developing feelings for each other. Polly, the burn victim, has a meltdown, so Susanna and Lisa sing to cheer her up, which ends with Susanna and John having some cuddle time while Lisa watches. Annoyed, Valerie writes her up, and as a consequence, Susanna sees another doctor, Dr. Wick, who is intelligent, insightful, and gently challenging, and equal to Susanna in a way Melvin is not. Susanna takes an instant dislike to her. In the book, Dr. Wick is described as easy to embarrass and provoke. Their sessions are limited, and her role is greatly expanded in the movie. Lisa doesn't turn, return after seeing Dr. Wick. Susanna spirals into depression without Lisa, and Valerie does not have the kind words for the spoiled rich girl, and Susanna shoots back with racism. Lisa arranges a great escape to Florida via Daisy's place. It turns out she's been in shock therapy. They hitch a ride with a van of drugged up hippies. Lisa is freewheeling with some dude, mainly to steal from him, and Susanna talks about her mental illness with a random guy. They go to Daisy's house, and Daisy still acts like they're in the hospital and has lots of chicken around. Lisa plays with Daisy like a cat with a mouse, exposing her self-arm and puncturing her illusions. Lisa's cruelty is painful to watch. In the morning, Susanna goes for a contemplative walk. When she returns, she discovers Daisy has committed suicide. Lisa takes the money off Daisy's corpse and leaves. Melvin drives Susanna back to the hospital with Daisy's cat. Cat becomes therapy cat. Susanna has a breakthrough with Valerie and starts to accept the need for therapy and desire to get better. Susanna's hero worship of Lisa is over. Susanna commits to writing and therapy. Later on, Lisa is recaptured and in foul temper. Ominous undertones with Susanna tells Lisa she'll be released. 
In Susanna's exit interview, there are questions of her long-term plans, a question that brings back society's expectations and her own directionless, I don't know where I'm going sort of feeling. Lisa has created distraction by causing one of the patients to have hysterics. When Susanna finds her, she's reading Susanna's journal for laughs in the basement. We have our final confrontation when Susanna tells Lisa she's dead inside and will always live in an institution. On one of the last scenes, Susanna visits Lisa, who is strapped down in a bed and paints her nails. Susanna says goodbye, bestowing therapy cap to the inmates, gives Valerie a hug, and then we have downtown blaring out at the end credits. The end. The end. Okay, so I wrote after that, lyrically appropriate, but totally just off- it's so blaringly optimistic, especially when that's contrasted with Daisy, who was the Stepford suicide. Yeah, but I mean, the suicide happened a while back. It, it... But yeah, she was. that's the kind of music she was playing constantly. And so to bring that back as a motif was a little disheartening. It almost makes it seem like she, Susanna, is not going to last very long outside of an institutionalized world. Oh, I did not get that vibe. I feel like Daisy's music was sad. Downtown is optimistic. It was the song that they used to calm down Polly. So there's a connection to that. But the whole point of the song Downtown is going and finding your people, like escaping from one thing, losing yourself in the lights and finding basically your community. And I feel like Susanna found a community, was able to feel things while in the institution, and now has the tools to go out and create a new community and find more people. I would have loved to see a cover of that because tonally it was just really jarring. And it reminded me so much of Daisy's music, which was superficially happy. Hang on, what was it? It was um, The End of the World by Skeeter Davis. Well, do you want to play it? It's the end of the world. The da 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 da. This is a sad song. I guess this is not downtown. This is the <laughs> so I I reject your premise. We can agree to disagree, but I I stand firm that she was listening to a song literally called "The End of the World" while committing suicide, and she was sad. And the end of the movie has the downtown song, which was used for comfort, which is talking about community as a point of optimism. I will say that it is probably just my perception because a lot of music from the 50s, even if they had very dark themes, if you look at the lyrics, had kind of a sound to it that just sounds really happy to me. And maybe that's because I grew up in the era of grunge music where, you know, the music did sound as discordant as the lyrics were making it. Okay. So that's just a perception issue with me. Sure. Daisy strikes me as being very similar to Dolores Umbridge, where you have a very cute surface that's hiding something that is not cute at all. Okay, hold on, because no. Now, when I say that she's like Dolores Umbridge, I'm not saying that she's a bad person at all. She's a deeply injured person and is trying to deal with that illness in the best way she can. What I'm saying is that she has sort of this persona that she clings to as a way of masking her pain. I think there's a lot of people who have a persona that they cling to to mask pain that aren't evil, horrible. Oh, I don't mean that imply she's evil. I'm just well, saying but you that- picked one of the most evil, <laughs> horrible villains, Dolores Umbridge, to compare her to. Like, holy smokes, girl. Oh, okay, but I'm not saying she's Dolores Umbridge. I'm saying that there's a similarity in that you have a very bright persona. Okay, for the second time in less than three minutes, I'm going to say we can agree to disagree, but I super do not grant that premise. Okay, how would you describe it? How would I describe what? Daisy. I would describe Daisy as tragically sad. I would describe Daisy as 
yeah, tragically sad. I, I, yeah, but when she's presenting, I would say, what is she trying to present versus what is she? I don't feel like she's trying to present much. She's all about staying behind her door and not wanting people in. Are you talking about in the institution or when she's at, at, at both of them? Because at the house, Lisa says, oh, you're playing like Susie Homemaker, basically that kind of idea. But, uh, maybe I don't think that she was presenting herself as, a perfect housewife or anything. I think she was literally living in a cage in both places for the benefit of her father. Like she was a toy on a shelf for his Mm -hmm. amusement and use. And it's disgusting and horrible. I don't feel like she was presenting much at all. She was trying to cling to a little bit of her sanity when she's talking to them in the kitchen that they have, you know, they have this whole conversation and she Mm -hmm. is trying to shut Lisa down. She is trying to maintain her composure. She's very, very hurt. But she doesn't react in a, in a, I mean, she doesn't yell and scream and fight back because she can't. She has not been given those tools. What would you say about the Stepford wife analogy that she does? Try Are you to just getting that because of her hair and the fact that she's in a cute little apartment? Because well, and also like what she surrounds herself with. She surrounds herself with like little knickknacks. It's very pink. It's very who bought that stuff. Do you really think Daisy was going out and shopping and buying that? No, no. Her father built that place for her. Her father is putting her in this pink little cage. No, if we're talking about Daisy, her father puts her in this ultra-feminine, almost little girl thing. This apartment and even like her hair, the whole thing is is her father's reflection. That's... That is where all of that shit came from. But to contrast with Lisa, who her inside and her outside basically match. She's a hot mess on the inside. She's kind of a hot mess on the outside. Sure. So that's my point is... But why are we picking on Daisy? I'm not trying to pick on (laughs) Daisy. Again, I see her as a tragic figure. Okay, but like you're talking about insides matching outsides. I, I mean, all of them could, you know, what, what's Susanna's inside versus outside? What is. But with Daisy in particular, it looks like she's putting on a front. She isn't fighting the pinkness. She Could she? Well, yeah. How? Do you think she has the ability to say to her dad, Oh, daddy, please don't decorate my stupid, disgusting, foul... I want to be careful with agency, because I do agree with you, she doesn't have a lot of agency. But there are different ways to react. And I'm not saying that's her choice. I'm just saying that there are... Now we're getting way too close to victim blaming, I feel like. And that's why I don't want to do. I don't want a victim blamer. That's why I keep saying I understand that she's a tragic figure. But then you want to say the word, but she's a tragic figure. Well, no, there's not a but. She is a tragic figure, period. Okay. And that's why I'm not trying to argue that. Um, I don't know. Maybe we started this part off on a bad note with the Dolores thing, because you seem to have a huge reaction against that. When you take a victim of incest who has been manipulated and traumatized and you're like, oh yeah, she's very much like Dolores Umbridge. I am going to have a pretty fucking big reaction to that. But my comparison is about appearance versus interior. Okay, real quick. Dolores Umbridge was from Harry Potter, the a bad guy, super sweet, saccharine sweet, totally evil, awful person. Okay, so I just in case anybody hasn't spoilers for Harry <laughs> Potter, she's bad. <laughs> yeah, I know, but my point was not about you know the characters matching up. My point was when you have a character that presents as one but is interiorly something else. Okay, I just feel like there are so many other people in fiction. Okay, and of course, at this exact moment, I my mind is drawing a blank because I'm angry. But literally... Do you want to take a break? No, I'm just saying. <laughs> not, okay, I'm not angry, but I'm, I'm miffed. Whatever. My point is, there are so many other examples of characters being internally 
X and externally Y. The fact that you went to freaking Dolores Umbridge well, is just... character. Oh, good God. And that's my point, is this is what came to mind because they were both, like, extremely pink and had the same hair. Okay, pink and similar, but not, not the they same. They had knickknacks, and it was very cutesy. But that's <laughs> my point. It was the example that I was thinking of when I was, and I'm not trying to compare it to Dolores Umbridge in character. I'm just saying that the way she presented her illness made me think of other characters in fiction. This particular character, because it's what came to mind, because they had certain visual similarities. Okay. Again, we will just agree to disagree. Okay. Do you want to take a breath or no, something? No, I'm because fine. Because you're upset. And you're... No, I just, I feel like you are a very smart person who has read a lot. And the fact that you're centering this comparison on the knickknacks and the pinkiness of it all is maybe doing a disservice to both of those characters. Like, I feel like you have the capacity to find other characters in literary fiction who are one thing on the inside and a different thing on an out- on the outside. The reason why I go to that one is because I do read a lot, but I don't watch a lot of films, which I know is ironic considering we're doing a movie podcast. So when it comes to visuals, the visual reminded me of this. I'm not talking about literary figures. I'm talking about visual characters. Okay. I, and I guess that that's fine. That's what you, that's the connection your brain made. I just find it. I mean, you say a lot of pink. You, honestly, the color I remember the most from Daisy is yellow hmm. because her robe was yellow. The walls were yellow. There were daisies everywhere. You're all about pink and knickknacks. That was like, it was yellow. It was, it was very pastel. Very yellow, it felt like to me. So again, we all see... Yeah, so I saw greens in there and white. It was just very pastel and bright. Right, but you were also commenting on the pink. She was not wearing pink in the hospital. Her shirt is like white and blue stripes or whatever it is. I didn't get a pinky vibe off of her. and so Okay, so pastel vibe. Right, and so you saw pastel vibe took it to a pinky place, and then took it to a Dolores Umbridge place. And I did not start at a Postelli vibe. And so that feels like a very big leap, if that, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so I'm trying to compare character, I guess, dynamic, rather than within the characterization. But then again, but even the dynamic, Daisy's not, okay, you know what? I'm sorry, we've done too much on this. Yes. So we're agreeing to disagree, sure. But let's talk (laughs) about other changes. Before we talk about the changes of the characters, because I think this is important, I just want to note real fast, the director of our movie here was James, James Mangold. Yay! <laughs> who, uh, those of you who listen to this podcast more than just today will recognize that name because we have discussed another James Mangold movie. Jennifer? 310 to Yuma. There we go. Okay, James Mangold. Very cool. And um, he got part of the writing credit as well as Rhinona Ryder who had bought the rights of this book or attempted mm-hmm. to buy the rights of this book and somebody else had bought it less than a week before when Winona Ryder was extremely young and she wanted to make this movie. It took her seven years to make it. Oh, wow. She handpicked James Mangold because of his work on Heavy. So I just thought that was really interesting. And we can talk more about that. But there's a couple other screenwriters who are women, along with James Mangold. And I feel like it really shows. So, okay, but let's talk about the difference of characters. Susanna in the book is very similar. I felt like the time and the place situations are slightly different. Like in the book, her situation with the hand had happened during her stay in the institution, whereas in the in the movie it happens before, before and it is like a sign of her psychosis. It is yeah, like one of the things that gets her to the or point of borderline personality disorder. Since right. That's a- so in the book, because she's very cerebral, in the book she's talking to the reader. In the movie, we have her writing in her diary. She's very well acted. We have Lisa in the book versus the movie. 
Um, she's just, like you said, a much bigger part in the movie, which I think was good because, you know, she moves the plot along. Yeah, and, you and need I think, to have a different dynamic for it to work. And I think that this kind of gets to a main change. The book was a memoir. And I think that's important because we haven't actually discussed another memoir. We've discussed short stories and we've discussed novels. But memoir is different. In a memoir, you don't have to have character development. You don't even have to have a linear narration. What you usually have in a memoir is vignettes or this is what happened to me and this is what I've learned from it. I feel like the best memoirs are getting a lesson. They're they're understanding mm-hmm. and here I am now and I can look back on this and understand it differently or understand it in a more complete way. So that's the focus of a memoir. That's the whole point of a memoir. Whereas the movie is telling a story. It's a fictionalized account of a memoir. Because it's a story and because it is a movie, we need character development. We need plot points. We need to ratchet up the tension. We need to have an exciting incident. We need to have all of those... Rising climax. Right. And then all of that stuff. So there's a lot of freedom that is taken, a lot of poetic license from the source material. And we can talk about whether or not we think they overplayed that hand or if they if they stayed true, hmm. uh, maybe when we get towards the end here. But yes, so they made the Lisa character much, much bigger. They got rid of other characters. I will say that Elizabeth Moss as Polly in the movie is delightful and yeah, so she sweet. Plays her really well. And so sad. She's pretty much the same. Georgina is pretty much the same, except in the movie, she's a pathological liar and she's younger. She's also very introverted. And she's obsessed with the Wizard of Oz, which is a thing that got added in to the movie. And I feel like it's going to sort of touch on the theme. So I want to save our Wizard of Oz discussion. But I thought that was interesting. That it's Georgina, the pathological liar, who was quote unquote swept away by the darkness. And in the movie, she's, you know, Dorothy swept away by a tornado. Okay, we will talk about that. So anyway, so that's Georgina and her boyfriend, Wade, who's not in the movie at all. I thought it was really interesting, though, in the book, her boyfriend, Wade is like obsessed. He's like, Oh, my dad works for the CIA. And he's name dropping and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the chapter, Susanna says, Oh, and then later on in in real life, these people got arrested and they have the freaking same name. So then you have to wonder if Wade really was crazy or if he was not crazy at all. Because, yeah, that left a little bit open to interpretation. There's some really good ambiguity in the book. That does a great service to the whole institution, to the people who she does talk about in the book. Yeah. For sure. Lisa Cody, who's in the book, but not in the movie at all. But she is there in the book. But I'm glad that they didn't put her in the movie. I'm mm. glad that we didn't need that Daisy there. is split into two characters in the movie. Kind of. We have Janet, who's the anorexic in the movie, who's not in the book. And so in the movie, she's there. She's just kind of there. Sometimes they need somebody else to say something. I feel like she didn't yeah. really have much of a point. But Daisy is basically the same kind of thing. The idea here is that in the book, she comes every year. From Thanksgiving to Christmas. And then she goes home. And in the movie, that definitely was not the vibe. She was there. And then eventually she left. And she, her dad got her an Eden chicken. An Eden kitchen. But she keeps saying Eden chicken. Which is a wonderful little Freudian slip. That happens in both the book and the movie. It felt like they switched. Or they added Janet as a way to sort of pad out the institution. So it doesn't look like it's just five girls that are there. Yeah. And she's got an instantly recognizable issue. Yes. 
Definitely. So we don't, we Jan- have a shortcut for, oh, she's anorexic and that's why she's in there. Right. And Janet's best moment comes when she is uh, watching Daisy leave and she, you know, cry. it's yeah, not there and she cries. And that is just- And 75 pounds is a perfect weight, which is a line from Daisy in the book. Oh, so sad. It reminded me of Karen Carpenter. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. So another character who was in the book, who's not in the movie, is Tori. She's a former drug addict. She's on the ward for promiscuity, which we need to talk about promiscuous sex. Oh, yeah. Sure. Her parents are going to take her away and take her back to Mexico, and she's sure she's going to get hooked on amphetamines and die. And so Tori is um, the one where there's this escape. There's going to be an escape. They're going to plan this escape, and it's so sad. They get they, all these girls. They get their, their little tiny bit of money together. They kind of make a plan. Lisa Rowe, who's been on the outside, is like, okay, this is where you get out. This is where you get on the subway. You do this. Like, they're getting her all pumped. And then she's terrified. And she can't quite bring herself to do it. And also, she gets drugged up. And it's like kind of like, you guys, of course they're going to drug her when they're moving. Her family is the type of family that is going to keep her drugged and docile. So... It's sad because the girls didn't think about that, but it's also very believable that, you know, you get, especially in the adolescence, you're like, we've got this grand plan, man, it's going to be awesome. And then like reality that is steps a very in. adolescent thing to happen. Yeah. And reality comes in and is like, oh no, drink your drink. And now you're basically. Okay. Comatose. So here's something I wish I had done while I was reading the book is have a list of characters because you have a lot of characters that are thrown at you and it doesn't help that two of them are named Lisa because aside from a few physical characteristics, it's somewhat difficult to keep everybody in who's tracking who and what's doing what. Oh, I didn't have that trouble. That, I, I kind of liked, I mean, there was a few few physical descriptions of the characters, but mostly it was their actions and their names yeah. that kept them separate, and I did not have trouble keeping them separate. I didn't mind the lack of physical description because it's only there when it's really necessary. So, you know, if it's a part of a character, then it's mentioned. Like the, the smallness and yeah. the, yeah. We have Alice, who's the one in the book who has no knowledge of the outside world, and they think maybe she was raised in a closet. She's not in the movie either, which is fine it was an easy skip because she doesn't really do much um, yeah, she's a fairly background character. The only thing that's important about Alice, and this is something we didn't get in the movie, and I have a feeling I know why, but we will talk about that in a couple minutes, is that Alice has to go to maximum security. And so the girls go and visit her, and she is literally sitting in her cell and covering herself and her walls with shit. Feces, sorry. So yes, definitely um, in mentally ill. And that harshness and the fact that the girls see maximum security and are like, crap, this is a bad place. And Susanna's like, I don't want to go here. Like that's that's the scare moment for Susanna. In the film, it doesn't happen with somebody being sent to maximum security. In fact, they never even talk about maximum security. Instead, it is the adventure and the suicide. That's the catalyst. So I thought that was interesting, that change. But there's also other things about that change that I definitely want to talk to. Cynthia Crowley in the book is barely or yeah, in the book is barely mentioned. She gets shock treatment in the movie. They've kept the name, but they've gotten rid of the shock treatment and made her basically a dyke. Yeah, so in the book, she has a very unusual way of talking, probably as a reaction to electroshock therapy. I really like that change in the movie Mm -hmm. because there has been a pretty dark history with psychology and how they've treated LGBT members. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I thought that was a great nod of, there's nothing wrong with her. She's a lesbian, and that's the only reason she's really there. Right, and she says, oh yeah, I'm a a sociopath too, because it probably says that in her folder, and Lisa says, no, you're not, you're just a dyke. And, you know, she was like, yeah, yeah. 
you know, because she is, and she's trapped there. To do Valerie, in the book she was white, in the movie it's Whoopi Goldberg, as we all know from Star Trek, as well as other things, I suppose, Whoopi Goldberg was in other things. But most importantly, Whoopi Goldberg was, was, in, Star Trek. was in Star Trek. And so it was really cool that Guinan was here to help Winona Ryder out of the bathtub. Okay. And, yes. Okay, but you're getting my background nerd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I thought that was a great change, and... Yeah, it was nice to add Whoopi Goldberg in Well, there. hey, diversity is important, yeah. first of all. Second of all, Whoopi Goldberg is amazeballs. And third of all, it allowed for a change in Susanna. So we see the racism. We see that the racism is being used to get a reaction by the patients. And Susanna at first is horrified by that. Like, And you can see her crying, going, that's horrible. I would not do that. Susanna's parents are rich. They're, they're upper middle class. There's some kind of a connection to a college because of, you know, the, the professor and all of these things. Her mother went to, you know, her mother's friends have gone to West, Bast, no, Weasley, Wesley, Wesley, all of this, Wesley. Yes, there we go. So, you know, they probably would think of themselves as progressive and as liberal people, right? There's even a JFK sign in the front yard of the psychologist's house that Susanna's at at the very beginning, right? So, okay, these are these are Democrats. They consider themselves not racist people. So Susanna fits into that as well. And she's horrified by the racism. And then when she's at her bottom point and she is trying to get a reaction from Valerie, she turns on the racism purely as a way to sink to that level. Yep. And of course, she apologizes later and Valerie sees through it. She knows she's just reacting and acting out. But I, that could not have been there if if Valerie had been white. So I liked that change. I thought it fit with the theme. It showed character development of Susanna by being able to play off in that racism way. One Even if it was a bad, is, awful scene to have to watch. Okay, so one of the nurses is black. Mm-hmm. It's not the same nurse, so there's a little character changing up there. But that's fine. Yeah, yeah. And the other doctor's side characters, I feel like they're all... Pretty much the same, except for Wick, who was much more engaging in the movie. But of course, she was a really great character in the movie. Vanessa Redgrave. Ah, yeah. Okay, yeah. And she, I loved her calling Susanna on. You know what she, she says? Ambivalent is her favorite word. And then the doctor says, "Well, do you know what it means?" And Susanna says. I don't care. And the doctor starts to talk and Susanna goes, ah, that's what it means. It means I don't care. And it turns out that's not what it means. It means nope. that you care an awful lot, but you can't really decide because you're being pulled in both directions. And I thought that was really fascinating and interesting. And uh, Susanna is very smart, but she's not quite as smart as she thinks she is, which again might have something to do with the fact that she is of the age that she is. And a lot of teenagers think that they're smarter than they actually are. Yeah, so Dr. Gawick is a great change in the movie. Yeah. I, I really liked her character. And for one scene, the one scene she is, she owns that scene. Oh, yeah. She's great. She's absolutely divine. The other doctors, eh, and Melvin, eh, the yeah. doctor at the beginning. He was actually eh. pretty well cast. He's yeah, bald yeah. and kind of boring. Right. But we do have the addition of Jared Leto mm-hmm. as Toby, which is the boyfriend. I think the reason they put Toby in the movie, again, we have to add some plot. We need to add a character. I think it's one thing for them to say that Susanna is promiscuous. It's another thing to to show it. And I'm using that with my eyes rolling back in my head, whether or not she actually is or not. It's open to debate. But, you know, in the film, I think that they kind of, they needed that man energy. Okay. Well, yeah. So the whole orderly thing doesn't happen in the book. That is true as well. 
Yes. Which also, like, that I bumped on. Why would there be a dude orderly, you know? I, That's not unusual. I, I know that they, they were there, but they were also very carefully monitored and watched. And it, it seemed... It, well, the movie glosses... I, I Okay, so we've touched on it a little bit. In the book, we have maximum security. In the book, we have 15-minute checks. 15-minute checks! And the doors open, and they check, and they check, and they check. Georgina is always on 15-minute checks. So she's, quote-unquote, one of the healthiest ones. On freaking 15-minute checks, okay? In the movie, it's a little bit more glossy. The girls have a little lot ah, more freedom. They go bowling in the middle of the night. They wander around. Well, that's around. because they snuck out. Not because it's Okay, but they were gone more than 15 minutes. Somebody would have noticed and raised the alarm if there had been 15-minute checks. There's not 15-minute checks in the movie the way that there is in the book. In the movie... They gloss. They put a little bit of a sheen on this whole institutionalized thing of it. In the book, the institution is scary. It is chaotic. It is dark and and foreboding. And there's maximum security, which is always a threat. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, there's the the seclusion room or solitary room that you could put yourself into, but you can't get yourself out of. You have to wait for someone. It is not calm and peaceful. They don't talk about there being a music room and an art room and all of that crap. The movie very much glosses and makes this a prettier version of the mental institution. The author does a great job with tone. Because mm-hmm. there are times when, like, um, McWeeny just had this immense foreboding. And there was nothing that you could point to where, wow, that's really Miss Ratchet-like. So Susanna does a great job with tone and just putting you in that situation where something feels awful, even if you can't point to something objective to say, okay, this is why it's awful. Right. And the movie did not have that. The most you can have is, like, a little bit of music. So when Susanna tells Lisa, oh, by the way, I'm going to be released, there's, like, a little... In the background, there's a little dark music. And that's about as close as you can get. Yeah. They do a great job with colors. To me, it was a very cool tone. I felt like the coloring wasn't... There wasn't a lot of contrast. I felt like it was muted in certain respects. So you're going to call it pastel maybe, or or light tones. But I considered it was all, like, of the same color. Even... Susanna's clothing when she's wearing yeah, there's browns a- and it's it's very muted, which makes the yellow pop. Uh, when Polly has her breakdown, she's wearing red. That's an interesting change because the rest of the time she's not. She's kind of pink and pastels. So I can to me, even Angelina Jolie, who's supposed to be one of the more vibrant characters has sort of a gray tone to her. No, I didn't get that at all. She's very yellow. And in the book, she's described she as very yellow. Very she's yellow. Hair, and her shirt is yellow and her skin. She's like all, and she's not wearing lipstick. But it is muted. There is sort of a grayness there. Okay, I would go with muted, but I wouldn't say grayness. And that's why I think it feels like there is a blue tint put on everything that hmm. sort of changes the value of the colors. Interesting. But I could say like it was all very carefully flat. Yes. So I agree with that. There we go. Um, <laughs> sure. Anyways. <laughs> so we talked about the structure jumping off in time. I will say that the movie starts with that where she's back and forth and flashback and she can't quite keep her brain going in one direction. And I thought a really cool visual clue was her cigarette in one of the opening scenes. She's smoking and then she has a flashback and she comes back and she looks at her cigarette and it's all this ash. She hasn't been tapping away. She's literally been mind transported away and has come back. So that was a good visual clue. Although once she gets into the institution after her first couple nights with her sleeping and waking up and sleeping and waking up, one comes down a little bit. It calms down a lot. And we don't have that pretty much. The whole second half of the movie, there's no flashbacks, jumping around, none of that. 
happens. That would have probably felt too disjointed, and they want you to get into the character. I also think that maybe it's because she's taking her meds. Yeah, that's true. But to me, it it creates a narrative where you can sort of fall in with the character and feel with them and their progress. Right. And we use flashbacks for exposition, which we were definitely doing. But there's a certain jar to those. Right. And that wouldn't have worked the whole way through, especially as she, quote unquote, gets better in the movie. You know, so. So one of the things that was the same is in both the book and the movie, she wanted to be a writer. And in both places, they were like, but what will you do? Oh, I'll be a writer. What will you do? <laughs> and, um, girl, I feel you because I also want to be a writer. And I also do like 17 different side hustles because you can't just be a writer um, until you're really good at being a writer. And then sometimes you get lucky enough to just be a writer. So cool. And hooray, epilogue, Susanna Kaysen went on to be a, a freaking writer. writer. Yeah. And so hooray for you. I, I thought it. Was, when doing the research, I thought it was interesting that McLean Hospital had so many writers. Yeah, I wondered about that too. Like, is it because it was so close to New York and New York, you know, and the East Coast and all of that in Boston and all of that? Like, is that a hub for intellectually people who then happen to? Because let's be honest, this is not a state run thing. Like, there's money involved to go here. So, like, yes. who gets to go here? Who gets to stay indefinitely versus like Tori's parents were like, we're not paying for all this money if she's not getting better. We're going to take her to Mexico, you know, all of this stuff. So, I mean, there's a, there's a very interesting classism aspect to this. So, here's a little bit of history. Originally named Asylum for the Insane, it was the first institution organized by a group of prominent Bostonians who were concerned about homeless, mentally ill persons abounding on the streets and byways in and about Boston. But yeah, it was always something that had money behind it. Um, It's also understanding that this is 1967 and psychology has progressed as a field massively since the early days. This has always been considered a very progressive institution. So that's one of the reasons why you might have so many people of a certain wealth class going there is that it is considered a very good institution. Right. I have so many notes about the patriarchy. Okay, go for it. Okay, so it's bridging off of the writer thing. Women can't be writers. Women need a plan. They need to get married. The fact that Susanna gets an engagement uh, proposal and that's how she gets, quote unquote, better in the book. And that's how she's able to leave because she's been engaged. The, the patriarchy is definitely called out by Susanna in both the book and the movie when it talks about promiscuity. And how many boys would she have to sleep with to be considered promiscuous versus how many girls would a boy have to sleep with in order for him to be called promiscuous? They made some very interesting fashion choices for Susanna. Before she gets into the institution, she is wearing very, very masculine clothing. Button-up shirts with collars, and and I thought that was interesting, too. It's like, and she's got the really short hair, and there's definitely a counterculture vibe Mm -hmm. happening here, and a lot of times that is rooted in a response and a, and a fight against the patriarchy. So in the book, she had a typing job and she had a completely different dress code than the men at the office. She couldn't wear miniskirts. All she owned was miniskirts and she wasn't going to get paid for a while. And so she tried to get away with wearing tights that were the same color as her skirt, but that didn't work. She got in trouble. She wasn't allowed to smoke, even though the men were all allowed to smoke. It was super not fair. I have to say, as somebody who has bucked plenty of dress codes in my day, I feel you, Susanna. Dress codes are patriarchy bullshit, and you should be allowed to wear many skirts, especially if it doesn't matter to your job. 
So um, there is quite a bit of patriarchy in the history of psychology. So the origins of the word hysteria. Hyster is the Greek word for womb. So when women were hysterical and having nervous fits, it wasn't because they were being oppressed. No, it's because their womb was traveling throughout their body and this was causing them to have mood disorders. Darn wombs. Yeah. So this is where we get the word hysterical. Yes. Also speaking of promiscuity and psychiatry, Rosemary Kennedy was lobotomized for being somewhat promiscuous, which is kind of ironic considering that she was a Kennedy. Yeah. Well, and even in the book, uh, Susanna points out at one point they're saying borderline personality is more often noticed in women. And she's like, but why? Is it because we just assume that women have this? You know. Well, I have an excerpt from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. Uh, they tend to be impulsive, particularly in activities that are potentially self-damaging, such as shopping sprees, psychoactive drug, substance abuse, reckless driving, casual sex, shoplifting, and binge eating, all of which have been attributed much more to women than men. Yes, and she points that out in the book. The disorder is most commonly diagnosed in women. Note the construction of the sentence. They did not write, the disorder is most common in women. It would still be suspect, but they didn't even bother to cover their tracks. Again, the disorder is most commonly diagnosed in women. Many disorders, judging by the hospital population, were commonly diagnosed in women. Take, for example, compulsive promiscuity. How many girls do you think? And then she goes off for that. She calls the listing of her diagnosis the charges against her Mm. in the book. And I find that very interesting. It's like she being accused of having a brain that's different. Most of the criteria has a female bent. She calls that out in the book pretty epically. Not quite as cleanly in the movie, but it's definitely there. Maybe this is a good time to go to Daisy and how awfully she is treated and how little power that she has in her life. How she tries to take some control of that and really can't. Let's talk about the patriarchy in terms of sex. Okay. Okay, so we can start with Daisy. It's implied, and then in the movie very explicitly stated, that there's an incestuous relationship between Daisy and her father. Mm -hmm. And that definitely takes away her power and her ability to cope and manage and be safe. So that's that's Daisy's. Yeah, and one of the interesting things about coping mechanisms is they can be very adaptive in one environment and become maladaptive in another. Mm-hmm. So for Daisy, when I referenced that she sort of has a way that she presents versus what she's feeling inside, this is a coping mechanism to deal with a very awful situation. It becomes maladaptive when out of that situation. But it's essentially a healthy behavior, which is sort of the conundrum when you're dealing with adaptive behaviors. So I think it's interesting in the movie, she is very clear about not wanting anybody into her room. This is her private space, which makes perfect sense for somebody whose body is being regularly violated by somebody that they're supposed to love and trust, who's supposed to love and trust them. She's even given her private apartment, but she doesn't have a job. So she's basically been kept in yet another place, another room, Um, at least at the hospital she did have control over who came in to her room and what happened there. So it's very, very sad. So ownership of space. Definitely. In the book, it's referenced that she doesn't like to be touched. And if you got too close, she would elbow you or pinch you or or step on your foot because she, again, had that sense of space, that need for that safe space. Yeah, and it's a way of reclaiming space in ways where it's violated somewhere else. The other sexual encounters that we have, we hear very early on that Susanna had had a sexual relationship with her English teacher, and it definitely is uh, her high school English teacher in the book. In the movie, she is a graduate and she 
but newly graduated from high school, and she had had a sexual encounter, at least one, with a friend of her family, so somebody around her father's age, again, and he wanted it to happen again. She was very firm that she did not in the movie. She's highly uncomfortable being around him, so you definitely get a sense that that's, this was not a or in lo- one of those misguided, we're both in love, consent issues, but he wasn't her teacher And she technically might have been an adult by the time she graduated high school. But I'm going to say the power differential is very real. And the fact that he's obviously not taking no for an answer and coming to her bedroom and harassing her. But then his wife accosts her at the ice cream shop and is mad at her for sleeping with her husband. It's like, okay, lady, come on, shut the fuck up. Your husband took advantage of some 18-year-old girl and you're going to be mad at the girl who's your own daughter's age. Let's also point out that when she's introduced to this daughter of this dipshit, the daughter's like, I might go to read. And the mother's like, or Wesley, because I'm a Wesley girl. And then later on, when Susanna encounters them at the ice cream shop, she's like, oh, how are you doing at read? And the girl's like, oh, no, I'm going to Wesley. They're just like my mom. And I'm like, of course you are, because your mom is a controlling shrew of a woman. But the guy was a trash pile. Ugh. So that's sexual encounter number two. Well, just to add a caveat to this is, and I, I don't agree with it. I think it's unfortunate. But women often, when their partner cheats, blames the other person that they cheated with, not the person who cheated. Yes, that is a common thing that happens, and it is still crappy. I agree. Okay, so that's sexual encounter number two. Then we have, in the book, that's basically it for sex. Okay. In the movie, we also have Toby, and he's hunky, and he's like a hippie, and fine, whatever. But it's also showing that she had developed a relationship at some point. She wasn't... Hmm. I okay, don't go know ahead. how much of a relationship this was. So she's at a party. This other random guy hits on her and is like, what are you going to do? And she's like, I'm going to join the Hare Krishnas because she's, you know, anti-establishment and she's too cool for school and all this stuff. And the guy's like, that's cool. Like, he's trying to connect with her, but he's a dweeb. <laughs> so then she goes off into the kitchen and she meets Toby. And Toby's like, oh, I noticed you at graduation because you were falling asleep. So you're obviously a rebel like me. And, you know, so then they have sex. Okay, great. Then, go ahead. I'm just thinking that there's implied more of a relationship. You don't see anything. You see like one flashback. But the fact that he was going to break her out of the mental asylum and say, let's go live in Canada. It can be youthful dreaming, but it seems like at least on his side, it felt like there's more of a relationship. On his side. I will get you that because then they're in bed and they're having this conversation and she wants to talk about serious stuff and he doesn't want to talk about serious stuff. And so she's like, okay, fine, I'm out of here. And she leaves and he's like, oh no, don't leave. I'm so sorry. And she's like, no, man, like she has a lot of autonomy early on before the mental institution. So yeah, she wasn't completely healthy, right? There was wrist banging. There was, you know, my hand doesn't have any bones. There was a lot of aspirin. There was stuff. But she wasn't nearly as sick as I think they all wanted to make her. So whatever. Now he co- he shows up at the, at the institution. Kind of white knighting. Total white knighting, which... For those of you who don't know, is when the white knight swoops in and saves somebody, even when they don't necessarily need or want to be saved. Okay, so he shows up and he's like, come on, let's, you know what, at first she's hypersexual, right, with him, which is fine. I mean, let's let's be honest. If you were locked up at that age, you might be hypersexual too and not overly disturbing about who you have sex with because, again, that age and hormones and, you know, hey, Lisa's been making eyes at me, whatever. Okay, so we'll talk about that in a second too. <laughs> Anyways, so they get interrupted, blah, blah, 
blah. They go out for their walk. He's like, let's bail. Let's run away. And she's like, no, she makes this choice to stay. They're crazy. You're not, he says. If they're insane, she says, then so am I. She's picking her tribe. I really did feel like he had this romantic idea of being a rebel and her being a rebel with him and da 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 da. And he was putting this perception onto her that she wasn't. She yeah. was her own person. In the book, she kind of has a boyfriend that she meets at a movie. And we don't get a lot about that relationship, but it, she meets him while she's at the hospital as an outpatient. But then I don't know how much she used him to get that marriage proposal then to get out so that then she could, you know, not be married to him anymore and continue with her life is definitely the vibe I got. Um, or also that relationship she has with the rich boyfriend where he would get upset and then she would placate him and it was this continuing cycle for a while. Right. Yeah. It's a very manipulative. Yeah. Sure. Oh, and then the other sex we have in the movie is the boy orderly. He likes her. She's like, why do you like me? And I feel like in a different actress's mouth and in maybe a different, slightly, slightly different connotation, the why do you like me is a tell me about myself. Why do yeah, you like me? And in this, it's like, It's asking for compliments. Right. And in this case, she's like, why do you like me? Like, I'm in this institution. You don't know me. Like, you know what I mean? Why do you like me? She's questioning his judgment. Exactly. And he's just like, I just do. And like, a gag. Okay. Well, there's also kind of the gross factor. She's in an institution. He's a worker there. Um, yeah. Yeah. So with John, they they make it less rapey because she's the one who you know, kisses him. Yeah. She grabs his shirt, but there's still issues with that. Yeah. And there's a lot of issues with consent. You mentioned it in your recap about the drugs. Oh, I didn't agree to this. What is this? Oh, just take it. Are we going to have a problem? And there's that implied threat. So that's a consent issue too. Like, and when she's going into the hospital, the forms that she signed, she's like, wait, I didn't commit suicide. I don't agree to this and I'm like, just sign it. Yeah, yeah, just sign it. You talk about that in therapy, honey. Yeah. You don't need to talk about that right now. So there's a lot of pulling away consent. Yes. And then an adult. And then once you're in, you can't get out, which is really scary because how do you convince people you're sane? You tell them I'm sane and they say, prove it. And you yeah. say, how? Like, there's no way. So once people have decided that you're insane, you're insane. Like, That's and I, I will say that even today, there's a certain level of that. And I think that that kind of goes in with labeling an identity with, in terms of your diagnosis, because they talk about this in the book and they don't really talk about it in the movie, but I thought it was really important in the book. She's like, this is the address of the mental institution. And when you're out there in the world and you're trying to find a job, if you tell people that you lived here a immediately know where you were. Once people know that you've been in a mental institution, it completely clouds how they see you. And it makes it hard to find a job, makes it hard to get an apartment. All of those things are harder because of the stigma of being in a mental institution, even though obviously, if you're not there anymore, the idea is that you're better. And she doesn't come out and say it. But it's definitely this idea of the stigma that how mental illness has such a worse stigma than any other kind of illness that we have as a society. But one of the reasons why people don't understand some like depression is because it is an invisible thing. And I've had people talk to me about this and say, well, why not just take a walk or listen to some happy music? I've literally had that people say that to me. People don't understand it. Yeah. I think, yes, and like you're saying, because it's really obvious. My arm is broken. I say my arm is broken. You're like, yeah, your arm's at a funky ass angle. It's totally broken. And oh, you should go to a hospital and you should get a cast. Oh, now it's eight weeks later and your arm is not at that crazy funky angle. It must be all better. But when I say there's something wrong in my brain, you can't see my brain. And I think that in the book, Susanna makes this really compelling case about how people don't want to be 
insane. And so it's comforting to them to put the quote unquote insane people in little boxes in a way. And they want to be like, how, how are you better now? Because they want to know if it, how could it, ha- is it catching? Is it contagious? Is it going to happen to me? What's keeping me sane if you're, you look so normal? So that's a fear-based response because if you look normal and act normal and you are or were crazy, then does that mean that I could or might be crazy someday too? And oh, the book does such a good job of getting into that idea and pointing it out and making those points. Oh, okay. So another major change, they escape. They're out in the world. We have our plot movement moment of Daisy's suicide and the pseudo lesbian kiss that happens in the van. Yeah. Um, Angelina Jolie does absolutely play up the sexuality of... Angelina Jolie is freaking sex on a stick. And she definitely does carry off that charm. Oh, she's very charismatic. Yeah. And so you can't understand why here's this very out of control person who still has this ability to charm everybody. Yeah. yeah so she flirts with... Uh, Cynthia. Yeah, Cynthia. And is just a very open, freewheeling kind of person. Yeah. Of course, Susanna is going to be drawn to that and think for a little while. Like, she kind of wants to be like Lisa. And, uh, and it's not until she sees just how depraved Lisa is with Daisy's death that she makes that choice to decide to not be comfort with Lisa. Lisa takes pride in being a sociopath and she says, no, we're fine. It's everyone else. There is a certain amount of comfort in saying, yeah, you know, we can be these off-ball people. It's not us that are crazy. It's, you know, the world, the society that's... And it's a very 1960s sort of feel with counterculture. Oh, yeah, the counterculture aspect and the women's liberation. Yeah, it is very comforting. And so then that makes me kind of wonder, like, at the end, when she has to in the movie she rejects Lisa and embraces therapy and then gets better but I that's why I liked her exit interview so much is her asking her well what are your long term goals and she still doesn't know and she's like 19 at this point it's fine not to know what your life goals are Lisa's the warning that Susanna has to make a she makes a choice she makes a decision that it's just that's a beautiful scene with Whoopi Goldberg where she says you know she's been here for six years yeah don't drop anchor here it's easy to be pulled in by a charismatic character who is really awful. Yes. And not to be objective. Wait, this is really awful. I shouldn't be following this particular character. Exactly. Shall we talk about the queer subtext? To me, I don't know that Suzanne maybe like by curious, but just pulled into the the wonder that is Lisa at that point. You know, she's that college girl who would kiss another college girl, but then you know And like it. And like it, but then maybe never do anything else. Oh, that's not what I got. Okay, what'd you get? I got that she was ripe for the experimentation and that that she and Lisa definitely had more than meets the eye. I see it as Lisa definitely being a manipulative person, um, sort of like the Blake Lively character in a simple favor where it's an opportunity buy. It's a little bit hard to differentiate because we know the author didn't have any of those experiences. So we're looking at Susanna as a character at that point then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there is the death of the author like we've talked about before. Yeah. But I de- I mean, I'm sorry. Again, it's just Angelina Jolie being sex on a stick and, <laughs> and you know, Susanna falling into that, kissing her. I feel like there was move for that. I feel like the fact that Lisa watched Susanna and the orderly make out. I feel like there's enough subtext here that you could make a case for there being at least a potential of a romantic entanglement between the two. And if you just take a couple of the looks that Angelina Jolie gives her and her wiggles of her eyebrows... She and the gives way she, everybody that look. I, considering that most 
of the people that she's giving that look to are women. The only time we see Angelina Jolie's character in a sexual encounter with a man or any kind of thing like that is when she basically rolls a guy for his wallet. And she's hardly in that room. So like there's, yeah. you know, she was, there just to get she the was money. just definitely there to get the money. So is she just manipulative? I don't know. Like I okay, definitely... So is a great question. Is Lisa a sociopath? Well, that's the thing, too, yeah. is because she's a sociopath. She's very proud of that. And then Cynthia says, I'm a sociopath, too. And Lisa says, no, you're not. You're just a dyke. And it's just very clear. You are a dyke. I'm a sociopath. And I have to wonder if doubt protests too much. Maybe you are also a bit of a dyke yourself, my dear. A sociopath is somebody who is created. So whatever their experiences in society, whatever their experiences with substances, a sociopath is created. And so this is the question, because is Lisa a sociopath? She does act with a lot of cruelty. She is very manipulative. But she also has that moment at the end when she's getting the nail polish put on and she starts crying. You know, is she really that dead person inside? Is Lisa really just puppeteering or is there something more to base this on? I can't see a romantic entanglement without it being significantly abusive. Okay. I will say my opinion of Lisa has definitely changed since I first saw the movie. So when I first saw it, I, I was kind of in with Lisa. I was like, she's an interesting character. I like her. She's really sexy. I can totally dig this. And I was talking about this with a friend and for him, as somebody who's had a lot of experience with mental illness and mental ill people. He's like, no, I just saw her as manipulative from the beginning. I couldn't like her at all. Having had some life experiences, my view of Lisa has changed. Interesting. So yeah, to me, I think Susanna is pulled into a web. Part of borderline personality disorder is not having a strong sense of self. Real life Susanna says that she already knew who she was. She just didn't fit society's definition of what she should be. I just don't see Susanna as being bi or lesbian. I think she was pulled into a moment and was really in love with the character of Lisa. So Fair enough. I, I just think that she was bi-curious, partly yeah. because of Lisa. And I also definitely read some other counterculture things in her character that was created before. Like I said, the hair, the androgynous clothing, her relationships, and stuff like that. So... <laughs> Okay. Can we talk about the healing power of pussy? I mean, the healing power of cats? <laughs> <laughs> Nicely put there. I Okay, I Melvin was such a tool, but I do like that when they got to the hospital, he's like, um, they put an order in for a litter box. And yeah. We're just going to let the cat be a therapy cat. That's so nice. The self-identified pathological liar tells us that Polly is burnt because she poured gasoline on herself because she was getting a rash because of a puppy. She wanted a pet. She wanted something to love. She couldn't get it. She burnt herself. Now she or she is stopped in this hospital, trapped behind this monstrous face in the society that prides beauty and conformity over so many other things. And she might never be okay. And she might never get out. And she will, even if she gets out, she'll always be behind that face. It's terribly sad. And she's given a cat somebody to love, something to take care of. And the smell that she has. Yes. Elizabeth just, Moss is just yeah. uh, so good in everything. So one of the themes I thought was interesting and beautifully done in the novel is the idea of freedom and institutionalization and the cages that you have, both mentally and physically. One place they can really get away from and have some privacy is when they're put in solitary confinement. That's the one place where they can have a moment to themselves and have that privacy that they might need. Of course, they can put themselves there. They can't get themselves out. They have to be let out. Yeah. So it's, it's choosing to put yourself in a smaller cage for your own sanity, but then not being able to control if you can get out. Oh, oh kind of like the asylum. Yes, yes. 
I find the idea of what freedom is interesting and what they consider to be freedom versus not freedom. And then when we choose to be free versus not and how comforting it can be to, to give, we give up freedoms for safety. We talked about this with the children of men. And so the girls in the asylum have given up a certain amount of freedom for safety. Yeah. And then there's also the issue of society as a cage. Mm -hmm. So she's there because she's basically a nonconformist and can't hide that as well as somebody else per se. Right. Exactly. And refuses to. Yeah. Or, you know, I wonder if it's refused to or an inability. Well, she says like, I didn't want to do skiing. I didn't want to do tennis. I didn't want to study. So I didn't. So I think she makes a choice to not participate in society. Um, There are some members of the population who may have a certain orientation, but for reasons, have to get married and are able to fake it enough to get through that situation, even if they hate it. And then there are others who just can't. Right. But this isn't that. This is Susanna making a series of choices. And one of those choices at the end of the movie, anyways, is to use therapy, use the tools, and to get better. So that's a choice that she's making. And let's be honest, she was pretty privileged. Like, you know what was going to happen to her? Oh, no. She got to go take a rest for a while. Like, that's really sucky. I get it. Not good. Mental institutions, asylum, your freedoms, all of that. But it's not like anybody killed her. Do you know what I mean? She wasn't actually maybe even at risk for the lobotomy, right? Which you could, maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. She wasn't lobotomized. She wasn't shocked. So I feel like she had a certain, she had a certain choice and she made a certain choice. Now, whether or not everybody else can make that same choice, obviously I don't, you know, not everybody can well, how much or of that should. Is related but... to her privilege. If, exactly. If exactly she, my point. Well, okay, but hold on. If she were working class, she wouldn't even be able to afford to go to that asylum. Right. Her level of society. So she's Upper, upper was it upper class. middle lower, yeah, sure. upper class she, she's fairly Whatever. well off she is able to go to this institution there's another girl in there who is there for a very short time because her parents can't afford it and it is mentioned often that well your your parents are rich that's why you're here her standing in her area of society is saying this is what you need to do this is the path you have to take right and she didn't want to take that path but that is a path that's laid out for her because she's of a certain class I'm just saying that you know if we're talking about choice and society, her level of society is its own sort of prison that she needs to keep a certain standing. If she were of a different class, if she were just... She would have a completely different prison that she could or could not decide to take part in. If we look at society's prison and cages and traps and society itself as a cage. Different cages, but we're all in different cages. And sometimes we choose our cage. Like sometimes you go to a mental asylum because... That's the cage that you've chosen. I'm going to say that... Okay, so first off, let's make a differentiation. Are mental hospitals bad? Are yeah. mental institutions... Mental hospitals bad? I. What do you mean by bad? Do we see them as potentially beneficial or as always damaging? I don't think that that's a fair dichotomy. I don't think it's always beneficial I mean, or always negative. I don't think any dichotomy is always fair. Okay, um, because there, there are the gray areas. But that's why I was wondering, okay, do we fundamentally look at institutions as being problematic? Or can we say that there are good institutions that are available to people that help them? Sure. In this particular institution, it doesn't look like anyone really got a lot of help in the book. Although Lisa is out there living with a kid and seems to be okay at the end. And Georgina is out there living and also seems to be okay. And Susanna gets out and seems to be okay at the end. So was that because they just naturally were going to be okay? Or did the institutional help them? Like, just because they didn't help Susanna, they might have helped those other girls. I don't know. It's, it's They're a tool. They're like hammers. Hammers aren't inherently bad. They're good for pounding nails, and they're bad for picking your teeth. Like, <laughs> 
This is a very nice analogy. I took it, came out of my head. My point is, mental institutions are like hammers. Mm. Maybe they're good for certain things and bad for other things. When used by it as a tool wielded by the patriarchy who's anti-counterculture and doesn't like you because you're a lesbian, bad. If they are used by the medical establishment to help you because you're bipolar or schizophrenic, ah, not bad. So okay. this mental hospital is for rich people. Yes. And so if you don't fit within rich society, you go to rich mental hospital. Yes. If you are poor and schizophrenic, what are your options? Not this. Yes. And that's kind of my point is, depending on your level in society, your cage is going to be pretty different. And yes. if you're schizophrenic, that is its own sort of cage in a way, because you're stuck with a, a non-neurotypical issue that's going to keep you from integrating in society very well. Yes. And I think the book did that. It, it told us about cages and that it made it clear. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. And I find it sad that she can't just be counterculture in her own way because it's not wrong. Right. Yes. It is sad that she cannot be counterculture on its own and that she couldn't just be a feminist person and that whatever, like she has to be also or seen as mentally unstable because of, of those things. Yeah, for sure. Um, can we talk about the theme of time? Okay. Okay, Susanna remembers her initial session, talking about the book. Her initial session with the psychiatrist referred to her to McLean is only 20 minutes. The psychiatrist, however, claims that it took three hours. So in the book, Susanna provides two admissions forms, one from the admitting doctor and one from an admitting nurse. The doctor's form claims she was admitted at 11.30 a.m., which supports Susanna's version of events. And the nurse's form, however, states that she was admitted at 1.30 p.m., which supports the psychiatrist's version of events. Because both versions of events have factual evidence, it is impossible to know which one is the truth. Truth, the memoir suggests, depends on one's perspective. So this is more about truth than time, but I think it kind of goes hand in hand. So it goes about truth and perception. And perception. So I just thought it was really interesting that Susanna decides to make this big point about truth and about whether the charges against her and they lied and da, da 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 and if you read it in one way you're like oh my god she's paranoid she's a crazy person and then if you really read it and you think about it you're like no man she's making a lot of sense oh god is she making sense because i'm crazy too or is she making sense because she's making sense do you know what i mean yeah but there are certain times especially when she dissociates and starts biting into her hand where okay this is this is problematic behavior because it's self-injurious yeah, but let's note that that happens in the book while she's in a mental institution. So... Does the institution make you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and we also have, like, we have an unreliable narrator in terms of memoir. So it's like she knows that we're going to call her an unreliable narrator. So she provides documentation, which can be seen as a crazy person thing to do, right? We both know people who are like, oh, the doctors don't believe me. Here are my scans and medical information. So... Obviously, I'm not crazy. Like, validate my perception of reality. And at the one hand, you're like, yeah, yeah. And on the other hand, you're like, dude, slow down. So I get it. I find that's why I love this book so much is because I feel like it grapples with that. And we're not exactly sure. And it's okay. Well, that's one of the great questions is what really does constitute abnormal behavior that requires institutionalization? Seriously. Seriously, that is a very good question because I could act really crazy and get institutionalized or I could be kind of nutso and have learned how to pretend to be sane and never ever go into an institution. But maybe somebody who is just as crazy as me never got the acting lessons that I got. So like they can't mask it. So then they end up there. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that the difference of abnormal behavior changes based on our culture. So what was abnormal behavior in the 
late 60s for a woman is not abnormal behavior for a woman in the late 90s, you know? I feel like Susanna and I had a very similar senior year of high school. <laughs> Just saying. So so what is truth? Is there truth? Is there universal truth? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Borderline personality disorder in itself is a fairly controversial diagnosis. It came about because, uh, let's see what I might not say. It's in 1938 was when it was first sort of talked about. Aldo Stein lists most of the diagnostic criteria and calls a group of people affected the borderline group because your borderline may be neurosis, borderline may be something else. That tends to be the difficulty. You know, what is a mood disorder? Is this masking as depression? Is this something else? So is it schizophrenia? Is it narcissism? There's a lot of questions with borderline personality disorder. And one of the problems with psychology at all is that it's not... It's analog, it's not digital in the sense that you can't have a single score that works. It is a lot of impression. It is a lot of interpretation. It matters on who's taking your history or who's writing those notes down and whether they've already decided that they're going to admit you when you show up at their office versus whether or not they're really going to listen to you. Whether they think that abnormal behavior includes lesbianism or whether they're progressive and don't think. Yeah, because it is very subjective. Okay, themes again. Identity, self versus the imposed. Am I crazy? Who decides? Am I promiscuous? Who decides? Am I worthy? Who decides? Am I healthy? Who decides? I liked that idea, both in the book and the movie, about identity. We also have the theme of relationships, healthy versus not. And I thought it was interesting in the movie, there's definitely a change, an evolution of relationship status, where Susanna starts off viewing the hospital as the antagonist, the hospital, the staff, they're there, they're against her, she doesn't like them, she's resistant. And then she changes her mind, and she uses them, and she realizes that they are there to help her, and then she gets better because of that, versus her relationship with Lisa. She's very drawn to Lisa. Lisa's awesome. Lisa's her role model. But then she realizes that Lisa is not a good role model. And she should not be following that path. And so she changes. And I feel like that actually is growing up. Growing up is when you realize that your parents don't know everything. And that just because they're Republican, you don't have to be Republican. Growing up is realizing that maybe your religion isn't the right religion for you. And you find a different religion or a lack thereof that works better for your life. Growing up is reevaluating what you've always been told or what you've always believed and coming to maybe a different conclusion. Maybe reinforcing the conclusion you already had, but maybe not. And like making those choices and those decisions for yourself, kind of an evolution of your relationship with other people and understanding your place in that. So I see this as definitely a coming of age type of thing, and, and especially in the relationships that Susanna has. One of the things, how I interpreted it, is it's very true to life. Uh, there are a number of people who go to therapy and have that sort of resistant, combative relationship with their psychologist or therapist. And that's not unusual. A lot of times, therapy starts with the question, why do you think you're here? Because that way, the patient has to articulate. I'm here because I need help, or I'm here because the court told me I have to be here, or I'm here because people told me I should be here, or I'm here because I'm scared, I'm here because I need, I'm here because I want. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really dictates how therapy is going to go forward and whether or not it's even going to work really in a lot of play times is why do you think that you're here? I was reading a psychiatrist's response to the movie and he was saying, and this is in my sources, so it's linked on our website, but he was saying the things that she said would not get her admitted nowadays. It would be, she would have outpatient therapy for sure, mm -hmm. but this is not to the level of actual admittance. So I thought that was interesting. Do we agree that Susanna needs help? 
In both cases, yes, because in both cases, something's up. Yeah, it's more than it's the that level. she's having problems. So are you exhibiting behavior that is damaging to yourself and relationships? Right. And That's it, something to look at. Right. And so if you are, then you need help, but it's just a matter of what kind of help. And it seems like for her socioeconomic background and her gender and her race and her time, that was easy to be like, oh, there you are. Go to the fancy pants mental institution for you. Laters. Do you want to talk about Wizard of Oz or do you want to... An addition that was made into the movie was the Wizard of Oz motif that kind of went through a lot of different stuff. We start with Georgina being obsessed with the book and the series. It's playing on the screen of the television at one point. The whole idea of Wizard of Oz is reality versus not reality and a dreamlike place. You could make an argument that the asylum is Oz and then there's the real world and you go to Oz and you learn your lessons and then the power and magic and blah, blah, blah was always in you all along. And then you leave and then you're okay in the real world. I don't know, man. Like, I think that they put the Wizard of Oz here because they didn't want to have to try to explain the painting. And that really bums me out because the painting was so cool. And I like... Why don't you talk about the painting? Because you said you had feelings about that. Oh my God. So in the book, the title Girl Interrupted comes from this veneer painting. And it's because Susanna, with her English teacher, goes to New York and he takes her to see this painting and she sees this painting of this girl who's interrupted at her music and she has a reaction to it and she's like oh look at this girl and you know blah 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 blah. then she sleeps with her English teacher and then her life spirals and then she goes to the asylum and then she gets out of the asylum and And eventually she goes back and she looks at this painting and she has a very different response to it than she did when she was young and so that shows us her aging and it shows us her character development her, her life development and it's really interesting and so she talks about how she too was a girl interrupted like not at music but like kind of at life and like you're going on one trajectory and then something happens and maybe your life diverges for a while and maybe it gets back to where it was supposed to be at the book she wanted to be a writer she was already on this trajectory she took this little detour at the asylum and then she kind of gets back to her real life and maybe she's healthier maybe she has better tools now maybe she has medication I don't know but she sees it in the book as a detour to her real life in the movie, we don't get any of that. We get the opening scene. We get Winona Ryder saying, maybe it was, you know, the times were changing. Maybe it was the 60s. Maybe I was a girl interrupted. But there's no context to that. And there's no further explanation. Because in the movie, she changes a lot while in the asylum. It feels like it was a necessary part in her development. And so was she interrupted? Um, Okay, so I was disappointed that the painting was not there in the movie. And then... Speaking of the frickin' patriarchy... I know, I was going to mention that. The Wikipedia article for this painting, you guys... Holy crap. It, it's like, this is the painting. Here's a picture of it. It was painted by this guy. And here are the important objects and people in the painting. The vase. The wine. The man. The window. The end. There's no discussion of the girl who's literally the title. The whole point of the painting is the girl who's interrupted, but she doesn't even get discussed. I'm like angrily waving my hands now. Yeah, I was going to say, you really... 
Ooh. I really wish you had a video at this point because Kaylee is right in the face. <laughs> Just, it, it is, it I, is I've been not kind of sitting back because I'm about to get hit. <laughs> it is not okay. It is not okay. So well, I was going to hmm. also say in the book, the second time she goes there, she's with her boyfriend. The boyfriend's like, everything's about you. This was the rich boyfriend who made everything about him. And she always had to coddle him. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, of course, she's there for the second time again with a manipulative man. Sorry, go ahead. But just so, you know, we were talking about the patriarchy. Here's a guy who's like, oh, it's always about you. Right. When going there was his idea and it's always actually about him. And but- she's not even allowed to have a moment that yeah. is significant. Yeah. 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 Gag. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So nice parallels there, actually. <sighs> And I, yeah, girl interrupted. I, I, I can understand why it's titled that because your life gets interrupted and you're put in sort of a holding state. But no matter what, your life experiences are your life experiences. It's like girl on pause. No, but it, it's still, no. you're, you're learning. You're continuing your life. You're the, the sure. river flowing. But in the asylum, it was a pause. Like they didn't have any responsibilities. They just kind of circled. They just, they didn't do much, you know. And in the movie, Susanna was able to grow and change and whatever. But some of those other girls didn't. They either, by their own decision or because they were so sick they couldn't they were just trapped in that little status and the same thing in the book too like there are girls in there and they're just they're just there they're just whiling away the time just waiting for nothing and sometimes just don't have the cure so for schizophrenia for depression for a lot of mood disorders you need medication and there was not the medication developed at the time I'll say this psychiatry and psychology is a field I really respect but that is not to say is not without trouble definitely go visit that Wikipedia article and write a strongly worded email like I just did because <laughs> it is really not okay. The end. Final thoughts, unless you have something else. Do you have anything else? Then? Nope. Okay. Final thoughts. I think the book is worthwhile. It's a very short read and it's got some really good insights, especially when looking at a historic view of the institution and psychology and what somebody did go through. That can still be very true today. And I think our insights about society are very interesting. Uh, the movie, when it first came out, I really did not like it. I liked the ending, but I didn't like the movie. As I was watching it for this podcast, I was surprised by how much I did enjoy the film that I didn't before. Okay. Yeah. So I love this book. I have read this book multiple times. I very much enjoy this book. Now, I came to the book after seeing the movie, and I saw the movie when it came out and really liked it at the time. Uh, It resonated with me for a variety of reasons, and I felt like I had to read the book, and so I did. And the book has been a staple in my home ever since. Uh, Watching the movie again, I liked the movie less now than I did when I first watched it. It was, at the time, it was very romanticized version of a mental institution and this warm fuzziness and the nurses really care and, oh my God, Valerie's so great and, like, they have this freedom and they go bowling and, like, people, you know, have the stories and it's tied up. I get a lot more out of the book because it's not so happy. It is definitely this vin- these vignettes and it, it doesn't get tied up with a little bow. And I found the movie, the additions that they made, some of the plot points, I think are necessary. Some of them, I think, add to the essence of what Kaysen was trying to tell us. But I thought some of it just got overly melodramatic, especially the end. I don't like the end of the movie. I don't like that moment of catharsis that happens and then another moment of catharsis and then we're going to lay around and wait to be found in the tunnels. And it just seemed, it just seemed very schlocky at the end. And yeah, it's very artificial. So I, eh. but it's, I mean, it's shot great. The acting is superb. I love Winona Ryder. I love Angelina Jolie. I mean, actually, 
everybody in this movie. The casting is phenomenal. It, it, everyone from Cleo Duvall, Elizabeth Moss, great, 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 great. Yeah, Brittany Murphy does a great job. Yes. So that's all good. But I would say, I mean, basically, it takes just as long to read the book as it does to watch the movie. And I feel like the book will stay with you longer and is just freaking amazing. And Kaysen herself didn't necessarily like the changes to the movie that they made. I totally understand. She also felt like it got overly melodramatic and it made it too rosy. And that was not the point of her book. And I, I, she also had some really interesting reactions to people who reached out because of her book of, Oh my God, it felt like you wrote this for me because I had these experiences. Mm -hmm. And her reaction was, I didn't write it for you. I didn't know you. I was right. just writing my personal story. Exactly. And I, I find that very refreshing that an author can say, no, that's fine that you had a thing. I'm glad you, you know, whatever, buy my book, put money in my bank account, but this isn't about you. This isn't a conversation. And I freaking love that. And I have enjoyed everything else by Susanna Kaysen that I have read. I absolutely adore this book. And, and I really like the movie, but I think the movie doesn't age as well as the book does. Well, considering I hated the movie before, that I didn't hate it was an improvement. It's interesting. We've kind of switched. Yeah. Switched but spots. I don't, it's not a film I'm going to watch again, unless I have to. It's a, it's a film. It's not like I would go and put it on and be like, oh, you know what I want to watch today? Girl Interrupted. But I at some point. I the book at some point. I don't feel like I need to watch the movie again. Yeah, basically. But man, every time I read this book, I get a little something else out of it. It's very dense. There are so many things in it. I just think it's great. So yeah. Hurrah! Read the book <laughs> and uh, maybe see the movie if you want to watch Angelina Jolie be freaking sex on a stick. Alright, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much! When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown when you've got worries all the noise and the hurry seems to help i know downtown just listen to the music in the traffic in the city linger on the sidewalk where the neon lights are pretty how can you lose okay super awesome i love that song <laughs>